Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Welcome also those in podcast land listening to my voice. And uh, let's open the word of prayer. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to find direction, to see how history is going to unfold and to better understand you in the process and to be able to exalt you and to, to lift you up, to praise your name and to see our stories as part of your grand story of, of what you unfold in history that gives you glory. And may we find our purpose and our perspective and our hope with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to get the screen share going here. And uh, the goal for tonight is I wanted to start. There, there's not a lot going on. I don't want to go through the entire chapter of 11 because it has some rabbit trails. I don't want to discuss uh, the, the, two, the two witnesses that turned into uh, two murders. Um, I don't want to discuss that uh, because it doesn't really play into the hymn so much. Uh, so I, I want to, but I want to open with some equipping. And this equipping is, I want, I want to give you, the listener, um, enough information to be able to make a decision on the rapture question. When is the rapture? And when will it, or not when is it, but what, what will it be like? What will... Um, well, you'll see the three main choices um, of the rapture in the rapture debate. The three main choices are, is it going to be a pre-tribulation rapture, a, a mid-tribulation rapture, or a post-tribulation rapture? And so just the beginning tonight, I'm, I'm going to share the screen here just in a moment. I, I want to I just, just generally equip us for the rapture discussion, and I'm not going to tell you what to think. I want you to look at it, and I want you to kind of look at the evidence as it is. And it's not going to be a ton of evidence, but I just want you to understand what each choice is and then to be able to, uh, you know, make, make your own decision on this. So let me share a screen. Hold on one second. Okay. All right. So, and that's not the one I wanted. Hold on a second. Please go away. That thing. Okay. So when people talk about the rapture, the rapture is really only mentioned one time in the Bible, and that's in 1 Thessalonians 4. And like the word Trinity, Trinity is not in the Bible, but you see the elements of the Trinity. Rapture actually is in the Bible in terms of uh, the Greek word. So it is in, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. So I'm going to read this to you. Uh, this is 4.13 to 17. And Paul's writing to a church in Thessalonica. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of man who have no hope. And that, by the way, that verse makes every Christian funeral different right there. Just stuck in there. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. That is its own Apostle Paul mic drop. Every Christian funeral should have that element in it somewhere. Because every non-Christian funeral, they don't have that hope. Okay, I, I continue. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus 
those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, we certainly will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are, are left will be caught up together with them. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So I put a couple bullet points here. Some in the Thessalonican church were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. You got to understand, they were under the, uh, the assumption that, well, Jesus is coming back and it's going to be really, really soon. And then grandma dies. So what happens? Is she screwed? Does she not get to go to heaven? Is she not part of this? Does she miss out? So would they be left out when Jesus returned? Paul reassures them that when Jesus comes again, the resurrection of those who are already dead, so your loved one who has preceded you in death, since you're still here, in Christ, they will rise first. Those still alive then, so if, if the rapture is later tonight, you know, my dad who has preceded me in death and he's dead in Christ, he's going to rise first. And then God will capture me up. Those still alive will be caught up or raptured. The Greek word is harpazo. So that's where we get the word for rapture. Okay, this is, I underlined it right there on the page, caught up. That is, so rapture is not technically in the text, but that's just where we get it. The idea of when someone says, well, I'm raptured, you're thinking of being caught up in the air. And that's what it is. We will be united together with Jesus at his coming. The main issue then is not how the rapture will take place, but when will the church endure the great tribulation or be removed from the earth prior to that time? And that's what, as we studied last week, and, you know, thank you, Mick, you did a great job. But that kind of came up in some of the discussion afterwards. Is the church ever going to suffer? Is God going to take us out? Out of the, 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 the suffering, or are we going to endure some, or are we going to endure all? What is the general consensus of Scripture? What, what do we learn? And so I want to help you to make a decision on that. That's, that's what um, I, I just want to help you. I don't want to get, make your decision for you. I want to help you with that. So, uh, so welcome again, everybody. We're just, we're just taking just a casual stroll through the concept of the rapture. So, there's three main views in Christian theology. The first view is a pre-tribulation rapture. And so they argue that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 describes a sudden, unexpected, but secret rapture. Okay, any of you who have ever listened to or watched the Left Behind movies, those are all secret raptures. Unexpected, out of the blue and of course, they all have their clothes folded in, you know, neatly placed shoes or something like that. But the pre-tribulation rapture says it's going to be a sudden, unexpected, and secret rapture. And so that those who hold to this argue that God does this to remove the church prior to the great tribulation so that the church will not be present for the outpouring of his wrath. And they use Revelation 3.10. I have it here. Since you, He's talking to the church of Philadelphia here. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world 
testing happens to the earth. Now they claim this, but the, the, the Greek that is part of that, that keeping you away, it only occurs one other time in the Bible. And I'll let you be the judge. It's in John 17, 15. And it's right here. This is the great high priest prayer of Jesus. Jesus prayed, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Oh, well, that seems to work against it now, doesn't it? Revelation 3 seems to argue for the pre-trib rapture. But now John 17 is, oh, don't take them out of the world, but instead protect them from it. It's almost like God didn't immediately yank Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire. He sent a fourth to be with them in the flames. Just saying, I'm just, just looking at what scripture, the image of the scripture gives. That's the pre-trip. And a lot of people, especially after left the, watching the Left Behind movies or reading the books, a lot of people love the pre-tribulation rapture. If you are um, very dispensational in your theology, um, then you, you most likely like the pre-tribulation rapture, though you don't have to. Um, this is different from premillennialism. Premillennialism essentially says that um, the millennial kingdom is going to be real and it's going to be in the future. And it is the world's essentially going to get worse, 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 and worse. And then Jesus is going to come back. Um, Post-millennialism kind of says, okay, the world's going to keep getting greater, greater, greater. The gospel is going to win, 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 win. The church is going to be victorious, victorious, victorious. And then Christ is going to come back. Amillennialism kind of says, no, it's not. It's not really a literal millennial kingdom, but it's realized more spiritually, and we're living it now, and we're seeing Satan bound now, that kind of thing. And yeah, it's you can make your own decision about that. Post-millennialism kind of took a hit when World War II and Nazism hit, and they realized, oh, crud, evil really is still on the march. So that, that's pre-tribulation rapture. So basically, God is not going to allow his church to experience the tribulation in any way. They're not going to suffer anything more than what they already have suffered and he's going to take them out and then the then, then the uh, tribulation is going to come post-tribulation rapture says that they claim that first thessalonians 4 17 doesn't present a secret invisible coming of christ but rather a loud public coming and that tends to be a more natural reading of the text the trumpet's going to sound, a voice of an archangel. You can imagine Twitter feeds buzzing and internet, you know, connections going crazy with how everyone can, you know, communicate with everybody at any time. You know, it's like, okay. So they argue that, no, this is not a secret, you know, left behind kind of thing, but it's going to be a loud, visible, public thing. And so they look at Matthew 24, 30 to 31, and claim that Jesus' return will be witnessed by all mankind. What does Matthew 24 say? Here it is. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. All the peoples of the earth with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So if you are a post-tribulation rapture, um, if that's what you believe, then the purpose of that, that rapture is not then to rescue the church from the tribulation, but to gather her to Christ for the purpose of welcoming him. They claim that there is a fundamental difference between the wrath of God and the tribulation, and that the New Testament assures us that in Christ, we will not face God's wrath. So like Revel Romans 8 and 1 Thessalonians 5. But the church 
hasn't been promised immunity or protection from persecution or suffering. And I got to say, you know, just looking at um, the last 2,000 years, uh, persecution happens a lot, and especially with Christianity, especially as our world keeps getting more relativistic and, and putting tolerance as king. Um, the church has gone through a lot, a lot of suffering. I'm just saying, I just, I'm just looking at a natural reading. I'm not telling you what to believe, uh, but yeah, that's just, and all believers may be persecuted to death, but their relationship to God will be protected. How do I know that? Luke 4, or Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. That, by the way, presupposes, he's talking to fellow believers, that they may die, that they may be persecuted and killed. That just presupposed that. He's telling them, don't fear them. Instead, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear the one, capital O, who after you have been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So, now Satan doesn't have that authority. That's God. So you've got the pre-tribulation rapture, the post-tribulation rapture, and now a more mid-tribulation rapture. Some of you are going, yeah, I, I'm waiting for this one. Okay, fine. Pre-tribs argue that the rapture is a removal of the church from God's wrath. Post-tribs will say that the church always has and always will endure suffering and tribulations. Mid-tribs say that God will allow the church to experience half the tribulation and then will remove her and then send the wrath. They argue using the 70th week of Daniel 9 and the example of the two witnesses that ironically we're not going to be reading about in, in Revelation 11 tonight. I'm going to start our Revelation 11 text um, after their episode. They use them as an example where the church will only endure three and a half years of tribulation and using Daniel 7 as well. And then God will remove her, remove her to, in order to send his wrath. I would say if you are a Bible literalist, and that is one of the blessings of dispensationalism is they take end time stuff literally, then I would say you probably would have to be a mid-trib person to say that, okay, it's going to be, you know, the three and a half years and then God's going to take, take the church out. Um, if you're going to be very literal with God's word, I see that as being more of a very literal thing. Uh, but now I'm going to ask a question, the closing question regarding the rapture. And it's this, what gives God the most possible glory? Because the scripture doesn't tell us. The scripture doesn't tell us exactly when. You can make arguments, and I've now given you three. Okay, and these are not exhaustive arguments. These are quick arguments. But scripture doesn't tell us exactly when it's going to happen. All three choices are on the table. You can argue it scripturally. You can argue against each scripturally. So I'm going to ask, what gives God the most glory? Does God get more glory rescuing his church before the wrath, allowing his church to endure some, or preserving his church like, like Daniel, Shadrach, or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the flames? to the end. I'm just saying, which gives God the most glory? Because this is not a scriptural issue because all three are possible. That's how I, that's how I would tend to want to think about it. So like, well, what's, what's, your, what's your view, Joel? What's your view? Well, I, I see, I want to look at it that way. That seems to me to be the better question. Can God be glorified by rescuing his church before the, the trouble hits? Of course. Can God be glorified by having his church endure just a bit, you know, half of it and then taking him out for the other half? Sure. Does God get glorified if 
he preserves his church, his remnant, his, 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 through all of it, even how, like, even, I mean, that to me, and I'm not showing my cards here, but that to me shows when the evil one tries to claim victory by oppression of the church, there's defeat sometimes, but it's his own defeat. It's not Christ's defeat. It's not the church's defeat. There's victory, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering. It's a second Corinthians as well. His strength is made known in our weakness. And that was kind of an emotional theological argument, the last one there. But you, you, you now have all three that I gave you. Something stuck in your mind. So if you think, well, what kind of rapture person are you? Well, it all, it's all going to come down to, it's all going to come down to, is the rapture going to be a secret thing or, or a public thing? And if you answer secret, you're not a typical preacher of rapture person. Or excuse me, if you answer public, if it's going to be, burr, burr, the trumpet's going to sound. And by the way, if you're the kind of person that also takes the festivals of God, literally, that Christ was, you know, he was killed on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He rose again on first fruits. And one day he's going to come again at the Feast of the Tabernacles. As in, or no, he, he at the Feast of Trumpets, excuse me, with a trumpet call, First Thessalonians 4. If you're that kind of person, then you're probably a post-trib person. Because you're waiting for him to one day tabernacle with us, Feast of Tabernacles. Then the dwelling with God is with man. And that's kind of a fascinating Jewish Christian theory, by the way. If it's a seat, if you if you believe left behind, that's how it's going to go, then you're a pre-trip. If you think it's going to be a public thing, you're probably a post-trip. And if you're like, well, it's going to be public, but it's only going to be half the way, then you're a mid-trip. Scripture allows for any of those three. It's not that important. It really is not. The important thing scripture is very literal about. But people like to talk about it. And if you made me choose, which I think you are. I'm going to go post because my experience is God is glorified most during suffering when his strength is evident and that God is glorified most as he preserves his church to the very end. But that's just my view. I would also go mid if I had to. I'm not too keen on pre. I'm just saying that doesn't mean I'm right or, or you're, or you're right. I'm just, I'm just laying that out there. I just for my story and my, my story doesn't ever dictate truth, but it kind of it can illustrate truth, I guess. When God's strength is shown in weakness, God gets a lot of glory preserving that church. And our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world right now are living that. They're not rescued out of it, are they? I know the tribulation is going to be a category or two more worse, but this is God showing wrath, punishing the world. We're not going to experience that wrath because who experienced that wrath in our place? Oh, that wrath still got showed on us for our sin, rather. But Jesus already experienced that. But we're not going to experience God's wrath. But we may have to have some suffering. Just want to share that. I wanted to just give you a quick rapture thing because this is this is we have a shorter hymn tonight. I wanted to give that to you. If any of you want, if any of you wants wants that document, I can I can email that to you easy. Okay. It's just, there's nothing important about it. It's just, you know, quick, easy. All right, now I'm going to share our text tonight. Oh, don't, don't bring up that one again. Okay, come on. 
Share the text you wanted to share at the beginning. Here we go. All right, this is Revelation 11. The second woe is past. It's starting in verse 14. Uh, verses 1 to, to uh, the first, the first check section of, of Hebrews 11, Hebrews, Revelation 11, is, is talking about these two witnesses, and they're going to have this kind of Moses and Elijah ministry. And um, ironically, you know, it's, it's the, they're going to represent the church who is going to be in the midst of suffering and persecution. Um, but now to verse, verse 14, the second woe has passed. And by the way, their story has like the lone gospel victory in the entire book. It's like they die, they suffer, they die, and God brings them back to life. And then all of a sudden they have like uh, earthquakes and, and all of a sudden a bunch of people die. But then others who are there, who had just got done persecuting the two witnesses, witness martyros, also meaning martyr, they start praising God. What? It's the only gospel victory in the whole book of Revelation, right there. It's amazing. The second row is passed. The third row is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. So you got the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And I had it put to me once, the best way to understand the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls is to consider them cyclically. And if you take them hyper-literally, Seals one to seven are going to go, and then trumpets one to seven are going to go, and then bowls one to seven are going to go. Some of those are very, like, cosmically disastrous. It's like, how many, if you take them all in order one at a time, how many times is the universe going to be rolled up like a scroll and all the stars falling out of heaven? I mean, I don't think we could withstand more than one of that. If you take them all in order like that, it's just kind of like, well, wow, how is anybody left at that point? But if you take them happening as a cycle or maybe happening some of them at the same time, um, then all of a sudden they, they pan out a little bit easier to understand. But regardless, the second woe was passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. The loud voices said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And that's that hallelujah song at Christmas time. And he shall reign for that, by the way, is the greatest possible praise song. And I will die on that hill. There is no other song theologically greater than that. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. I mean, that right there is the ultimate mic drop. It's just nonstop mic drops. That is the greatest possible praise song. Is right here. He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God, they did this back when I taught a couple sessions ago, back in chapter five. They fell on their faces. They worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was. Now, what are you expecting there? Who is, who was, and who is to come. There is no is to come. This is the end. They don't have to say that. It's come. It is done. Who is and who was. There, there's no need. It, it's like redundancy, department of redundancy. It's there. It's there. Who is and who was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. 
The nations were angry and your wrath has come. So this is kind of building on, you can turn to Psalm 2 sometime. You kind of read Psalm 2. It's kind of here. You're seeing it build a bit. The nations are angry and your wrath has come. It doesn't matter if they're angry. God's wrath has come. It's crispy critters time. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. You see, there's hope for us. There is not hope for them. And your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Mm. This trumpet judgment is going to unfold, by the way. If you, you're reading this, you're going, judgment, judgment. Where, where have I heard that before? Well, the big great judgment seat of Christ, the final judgment. That's Revelation 20. So I know here in our text, so you're saying, well, I don't believe you, Joel, that some of these things are cyclical. Well, what's being talked about in Revelation 11 is going to unfold literally in Revelation 20 when that judgment does happen. So some of these things are going on at the same time. But John writes it as he sees it. That's all he can do. And God preserved it for this this way. At the sounding of the trumpet, we're expecting another terrible judgment. I said we get a choir. We get a praise song. We get a, a majestic hymn. Mm. The heavenly voices shout out the turning point. You all have that point in a movie where you're watching it and it's all doom and gloom. And all of a sudden the great turning point happens. And then all of a sudden you can relax because the climax has occurred. And now good things are going to start to happen. All the bad things are going to be over. And now wham! And now the good things are going to start to unfold and the movie brings its conclusion to an end. In Tolkien's works, it's when uh, the ring of power meets the flames of Mount Doom, the, the, the flaming lava, and all of a sudden it's destroyed and all also destroyed, but there's still like a third of the book left to unfolding things. That's fine. That's the climax. It's done. You built to that point and boom. And now we unwind. This is the climax. The entire Bible has been waiting for this. Every time you prayed the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Boom! Right here. This hymn proclaims it. This is it. The arrival of the kingdom. What's coming? Or better yet, let's be specific. Who is coming? You see, when Jesus came the first time, we recall shepherds. We recall Watching their feet, watching their flocks at night. And the heavenly choir announced, heralded his first advent. We live in the time between the two advents. This, behold, the second advent of our Lord, announced by the same choir. Dang. He's not coming this time to bear sin. He's not coming to teach. He's not coming to reconcile. He's coming to judge. He's coming to fully and finally, in a fullness sense, reign. Mm. 
The time has come. Let's read this again. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations are angry and your wrath has come. The time has come. Let's make this person. Take a moment to think. Ponder the perspective of world history up to this point. Ponder all that has transpired, all the evil. Great perspective. The injustice of the cross. The one who never sinned bore sin, but not his own. But injustice as a substitute on our behalf. Ponder the church who's had to endure. Yes, the church has had a great commission, a great commandment, a great mission. God works in and through. Ponder the perspective of world history, all the evil. And now things are done. Ponder current events, the tumultuousness of our world the idols that our world clings to and continues to cling to, what the faithful still endure, what the remnant endures. You see, this gives us perspective. The one who was, he's always been there. He's always been king. The one who is, every new day belongs to him. We trust him and are glad. We're satisfied. And from our standpoint, who is to come? From this standpoint, there is no more come. He is. He eternally is. The nations are angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. You may not feel like anything. You might look at this and go, finally, I made the Bible. I'm one of the small, but I'm here. You see, we exist to revere Jesus' name, not our own names. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. This is not some great um, ecological statement here. This is what they've been doing. They'd been destroying the earth. Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse and pestilence and war and famine, all that kind of, it's like, they've been going boom, 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 boom. They've been destroying the, the Christians and having at it. And so this is, this isn't meant to be, you know, a, 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 the doctrine of climate change or something like that. This is just at some point enough is going to be enough. We've been saying that all along, but this is finally that point where enough is enough. This is it. Reign. Who reigns? Yes, indeed, Professor. Indeed, the day of reckoning, if you will. Yeah, Judgment Day. This is this is describing Judgment Day. We're going to see it happen in Revelation twenty, but this is describing it. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who the one who is, the one who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now he's beginning to reign in a sense in which he's not yet reigned before. Because the kingdom of this world, for a time, 
appeared to reign. Satan appeared for a time to reign. But in the way in which all of creation has been expecting, this hymn heralds the full and final reign. Back at the verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of the world will have had its day, and its day done. That kingdom is now the kingdom of the Messiah. He's the one with the kingdom now. We pray thy kingdom come. Yes, we're waiting for that to come. Here it is. Yeah, balances have to be settled. You're right. Salvation by grace through faith is a limited time offer that yields an unlimited joy. Amen. I mean, this is it. So God doesn't begin to reign here as if he's never had the throne to begin with. No, he's always had the throne. But in terms of our understanding, in a full and final way, this is it. So think about yourself. Let's personalize this. Has he been reigning in world history? Let's pull an Esther. And that praise song, even though I can't see him, he's moving. He never stops. He never stops working. Has God's hand been at work all this time? Through all that we've gone through as a world? You have to answer that question. Because if your answer is no, then you're a deist. That God really doesn't care. God just kind of, you know, creates the stopwatch and winds it once and throws it in a drawer and walks away. Why would God care? If God cared, why would he allow this? I hate to break it to you. I don't think God allowed anything. It's hard, it's hard to argue that with God's sovereignty, that God just allows something. Why did God decree it's theologically a more satisfying question. It also makes us angry. But oh well. The nations are angry, but that, that God's wrath has come. So your answer is yes, God's hand has been at work. For the most possible, for the most possible glory, God unfolded history the way he did. And I know you may not like that or understand that. How else was Eve going to eat the apple? How else? She had no power to do that. But for some reason, in God's grand story, reconciling his children to him through a substitute, the great gospel story, that gave him the most possible glory. Has God been reigning even when evil seems to have reigned? That's something you have to have an answer for. I know it's a problem of evil thing you've got to deal with. Is God still at work even though it looks like he's not? Until Jesus resurrected, I wonder if that went through their minds. Did evil win? Because Jesus is now dead. I mean, does evil get to win? I mean, in a real sense? I'm not trying to make God sound like he's some kind of malevolent being. God is a sovereign being. 
And a sovereign being doesn't allow things. A sovereign being decrees things. Now think about your heart. You can think about current events. Is God still sovereign as the world goes through what it goes through? Is he still sovereign in a COVID world and in a post-COVID world and a Delta variant world? Is God still sovereign as people deal with epidemiology and deal with vaccinations and deal with biology? Is God still sovereign with all this that we're going through right now? Is God still sovereign as the geopolitical landscape shifts and has uncertainties? Is God still sovereign? If your answer is no, then where do you land your plane? There's no runway anymore. Is God still sovereign in your story? But Joel, don't you know what I've had to go through? Don't you know my suffering? Don't you know my struggle? Some of you, yes, I do. I struggle singing this hymn, Joel. It's hard to thank you, God, because I don't feel like you're really in control. I don't really feel like you're reigning, God, because my struggle seems to reign. And the issues I go through and deal with, they seem to reign. And all these people in my life who are down on me, all the things I struggle with, my depression, my anxiety, my hurts, my abuse, my pain, they seem to reign. So how can I celebrate God? It doesn't appear that you reign with the same certainty that they're celebrating God. How can I give thanks to you, God? You see, this hymn is a beautiful hymn, but this hymn hurts if you're not there. This hymn hurts if you hurt. And if you don't have a satisfying answer to why you're going through what you're going through. Second, link this back to the rapture question. Why are you suffering right now? Why hasn't God rescued from that? Because for some reason, God gets the most possible glory by seeing your story transformed in weakness by showing his power. Rather than just ending your pain and ending your struggle and yanking you out. I don't know why God still has you where he has you. The only answer I can think of is for his glory. That's a great question, Randy. Randy asks, is Satan described as the prince of power of the year? Yes. Isn't God conceding him his territory for now? God, in a way, did that with Job. Yes, God was sovereign in that story, but God allowed, you know, for the sake of, of that to unfold, God said, okay, sure, you can't, but you can only go this far. To a degree, Satan is thought he won on the cross, too. I got you. Finally. This hymn is hard when you suffer. When you suffer and you don't have a satisfying answer for your suffering, except God, you just stink. At least at the minimum, have a Naomi answer. God, you did this. You made me bitter, God. How dare you, God? That at least has faith underpinning some of it. Like, God, you're in control. I don't like what you did, but you did it. It's hard when we lose people we love. When our life drastically changes because of that. I've had half my life with this disease. 
I'm 42. 21 of those years has been with a, a neurological disorder where my body attacks itself. All the prayers that have been prayed for me, are people losing faith because God hasn't healed me yet? I know I'm not. I've learned to see God at work even in the midst of my suffering. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, for awarding your servants or prophets. I like that at some point that's done. I like that finally evil is going to get its due. I like that. I like that. I want evil punished. And that's a very humbling statement. But that I should convict me in the midst of all of my struggling with sin. Then I remember my evil was punished. I just wasn't punished. Jesus was. The time has come for rewarding your servants. This is a hard lesson to teach tonight. I don't like where I took it a few times. You've got to wrestle with these kind of things. Thanks. God's not a sinner. God doesn't lead us to sin. But the evil that unfolds never surprises God. It can't. We can't budge off of God's sovereignty here. That's a good point, Meg. God doesn't have to save anyone, yet he, saved, yet he saves anybody at all. That's grace. We can all just be left to our devices. Let's conclude with this. Then God's temple, verse 19, and heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a severe, severe hailstorm. God's present even in the chaotic. God's present in powerful. There he is. This is the most intimate God gets. His holy of holies. His mercy seat right there on the Ark of the Covenant. This is the inner circle of the inner circle. We've only seen it in a movie once, I think. Indiana Jones movie, maybe. Or maybe, maybe he was in there in the Ten Commandments. I forget. Well, in the chaos of a storm, there he is. He's in the, he says in the, in the Old Testament, he's in, the, he's in the whirlwind and the storm. God's temple in heaven was opened. Christ is going to come next. In terms of salvation history, that's it. The dwelling of God is with man. Here it is. God's kingdom is a personal kingdom. He reigns literally and also in our hearts. He reigns in our lives. If there's a part of you that's not submitted to the, the, the ruling sovereignty of Christ, that's an issue. That's something that should be on your heart. If it's something you're hanging on to, it might be an idol. In fact, take my out of that sentence. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. We saw that just for one brief second when the curtain was torn when Jesus died. 
This is it. When you read a hymn like this, acknowledging the sovereign rule of God, acknowledging that history is one day going to end, I pray it helps you to hang on right now, to keep trusting God right now, to keep seeing your story be used for his glory, to still trust in him even when he can't see him, to know he's moving, to still have the faith of Esther in that story. It's a harder, harder hymn of, of praise tonight. And this has been Big Rev for Masterclass Theology. Hopefully I haven't lost you all. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.